0: Episode 6, Neck Deep We'll come back to the Gospel of John in a later episode, and we'll definitely return to some of those promises that Jesus made to John. But for now, we're going to leave the familiar text found in the Bible, and go to a source that will cause anxiety and nausea for most students. Research papers. So, what are we researching? While the four Gospels do a fine job summarizing the approximately three years of Christ's active ministries, along with a few anecdotes about the rest of his life. The next book of the Bible, Acts, covers the next three decades in 24,000 words, which, if evenly distributed, is less than a thousand words per year. The opening chapters begin right after Easter story, but quickly start jumping years at a time. And by the time we get to the Saul-Paul story, the tale goes off on a tangent and never returns to what happened to the other disciples. Nor does it even mention what happened to Paul. What about the epistles? Again, mostly Paul, but even they were about message and not context. Our research is trying to understand what happened to John, between the Easter story and Patmos. But to find out the answers, we're going to have to turn to historical records instead of the Bible. Oh yeah, and a big research paper also. The History of the Church As I said, a big research paper. While teaching research, we discuss source credibility when selecting material to put into a research paper. You know, I want to be honest that both names I'm about to mention have some issues of credibility, but it's far from a cop interviewing a drunk hobo who witnessed a crime from a dark alleyway. Around the year 300 ish AD, Rome had a new emperor, Constantine the Great, uh, who did something very different from his predecessors. First, he stopped killing Christians, about time. Uh, Then, he decided to tolerate Christians, how noble. Uh, Shortly after, he began to promote Christianity. Seriously, is this a trick? Times were a changing. History looks back at this sliver of time as the creation of the Roman Catholic Church, even though that happened centuries earlier. Yes, there was a bishop of Rome as well as other bishops elsewhere around Christendom, but as a whole, they were an underground organization just trying not to be wiped out by the Romans. Not only did persecution abruptly end during the reign of Constantine, but he helped Christian leaders come out from the holes that they'd been hiding in. After three centuries under rocks, Christian leaders stepped into the bright lights of Rome. But there was an issue. Different churches had different traditions, and even variant texts. Constantine the Great earned his moniker not because of his moral authority, (laughs) but because he was an efficient organizer. Looking upon the chaos of his new religion... He understood that something needed to be done, so he helped organize a little meeting, later known as the Council of Nicaea. You know, the Nicene Creed. What was the purpose of church leaders coming up with a creed? Well, so everyone would agree what it meant to be Christian. Dig into this time period and you can easily twist the words and efforts of the church leaders as they tried to find common ground and orthodoxy for this new Roman Catholic Church, as it would be later called. Within a century, we'd also get biblical canon, so that we'd have a solid foundation on which to build. What a fascinating era to live, huh? One of the leaders of this time period was the Bishop of Caesarea in Palestine. You know, Rome had bulldozed Jerusalem centuries earlier, The Bishop Eusebius not only had an important voice, even when he was wrong on issues, but he also received an important commission, a history of the church. Yup, the boss, Emperor Constantine, had a curiosity about the faith of his mother, who'd be later known as St. Helena, and wanted to know what he was getting into. As a result, Bishop Eusebius wrote that he wrote what would become a 430-page Penguin classic translated by G.A. Williamson about all the things that had happened from the time of Christ into the present. How's that for pressure? Did Constantine pick the right guy? Was it an infallible research paper? Having read it, you can certainly see that his heart was in the right place. Today, we have dozens of denominations with different colored lenses, which is why this important shoe does not fit all those different feet. Modern scholarship can be cruel to the legacy of both Emperor Constantine and Bishop Eusebius, but his historical record is the only surviving record of the era. So, but have you read it? Oh boy, does it have some cool background. But this is not a man who's trying to define Christianity according to his opinion. He made a big research paper and looked up the works of writers with first-hand or even second-hand knowledge of what the heck happened. It was the Dark Age of Christianity, after all. The Eusebius Notes Version So in reading this, you get kind of a quick recap of Christianity, which I'll just kind of quickly go through so you kind of know the context. Uh, He talks about Barnabas having great success. Eusebius talks about Thomas sending Thaddeus to somebody named Abgar. Uh, Thaddeus then tells Abgar all about Jesus and how Jesus destroyed the gates of the underworld. Matthias was elected to replace Judas. Stephen becomes a leader. James the just rises to prominence. Philip encounters Simon the Magus. Pilate conveys Christ's story to Tiberius. Herod's change. Pilate commits suicide. And then around the year 37 to 41 AD, he talks about Gaius Caligula. Finally, he brings up that famine strikes the entire world. How Claudius rules from the year 41 to 54 AD. James Zebedee was killed by the sword. Herod was struck dead by an angel. Peter confronts Simon the Magus in Rome, that was a doozy, Uh, which explains the Gospel of Mark being written for the Romans. Uh, An anecdote about the Jews being expelled from Rome and moving to Asia Minor. Uh, Discusses Paul being active in his ministries. And finally, how 30,000 Jews were killed during a Passover riot in approximately 54 AD. Okay. So that was the first few decades. Ask yourself this question. Where was John, the beloved disciple? I stop the recap because we reach a name many are familiar with. Nero. You know, yes, Nero is the guy who had Peter and Paul killed. But I firmly disagree with the camp that feels that this is when John wrote Revelation as a figurative code for Christianity going to hell. I'll explain why in just a little bit. But Nero was nasty, so let's keep our summary going. All right, here are some more events. Um, A false Christ attempted to siege Jerusalem. Um, Paul's trial advances. Uh, Luke writes his account. The Jews turn their attention to James the Just. Empress Agrippina ruled Nero's early years. Then Nero eliminates public tortures, really? Uh, And then in 59, Nero kills his mother. Uh, Debauchery and art filled Nero's life while his empire grew. And then, in order to annex land for his new golden house, Nero blames Christians on starting the fire. And because of this, Nero has Peter and Paul killed as part of the lie. This is all about 64 AD. Nero's power quickly fails and the Senate condemns him, which leads to his suicide in 68 A.D. Following Nero, the next stage of Christianity is the fall of Jerusalem. Remember, most of the known names from the Gospels are dead, leaving us with James the Just, you know, the brother-cousin of Jesus, and John, wherever the heck he is, Eusebius has wonderful details about what went down, but that's mostly due to the primary sourcing of Josephus. So here is a quick summary of the events around 70 AD. It starts with, James the Just is universally regarded as the most righteous man around. James the Just is secretly the brother of Jesus and Jude. James the Just proclaims Christ at Passover. And because of this, James the Just is thrown from the temple and killed with a club when the fall didn't kill him. Now, after this, the city was mortified by what took place, which leads to, in approximately the year 66 AD, Gallus failed to siege Jerusalem with 40,000 troops. And then, he loses 6,000 troops on his retreat to Caesarea. And this means the Jews grow confident. Now, many of the Christians at this time fled, seeing it as a sign. And then, Nero sent Vespasian before his suicide. Now, during this time period that we're focused on Jerusalem, Rome went through three leaders. Finally, Vespasian gave the army to his son Titus. And Titus prepared his 50,000 troops for a long siege. Now, the way that this went down, Titus waited until three million Jews, according to Josephus, three million Jews had gathered for the Passover. Then, Titus attempts to give the Jews a chance to surrender. When that doesn't happen, Titus then levels the city. Now, Eusebius gathers up some pretty gnarly accounts of the destruction of Jerusalem which is probably due to the fact that Jews often turned against Christians during the three centuries of Roman history. Yeah, Um, but after three centuries of shared persecution by the Romans, the Jews and the Christians were not on good terms. Seeing it as a sign, most Christians in this time period had already fled for Petra or for the churches started by Paul including the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is now known as Turkey. So, where was John? Eusebius quotes and cites his way through the years after Christ, which is where many of our traditional knowledge comes from. He tells us that Peter was crucified, how Paul was executed, and then mentions several other important deaths. Lots of history. Lots. I wouldn't be forthright if I didn't say I had a disagreement with Eusebius when he writes the following summary. Book 3, Chapter 1. Thomas, tradition tells us, was chosen for Parthia, Andrew for Scythia, John for Asia, where he remained till his death at Ephesus. According to... tradition? Seriously, Eusebius? You, you can't claim facts without a citation. Now, I'll chase down this John died at Ephesus claim later. But for now, I'm going to jump to some anecdotes about John that will add to your understanding of the beloved disciple. First, Eusebius confirms that John was a prisoner of... Domitian, while at Patmos until Nerva succeeded to the throne, which is a minor debate with modern scholars on the writing of the book of Revelation. I'm with Eusebius. Now there's many other sources that talk about who the emperor was, so let's go through those. First, We have Tertullian. I'll have to apologize for my pronunciation on these names. Uh, But Tertullian writes in his Apology, he speaks of Domitian as having banished some Christians and afterward giving them leave to return home, probably intending St. John and some others. Next source, Origen. Explaining something in Matthew, he says, James, the brother of John, was killed by the sword by Herod. And a Roman emperor, as tradition teaches, banished John into the island of Patmos for his testimony which he bore to the truth, uh, word of truth. Our next source is Victorinus, <laughs> the bishop of Ptah, around the year 290. Again and again says that John was banished by Domitian and in his reign saw the book of Revelation. Jerome In his Book of Illustrious Men, says, Domitian in the fourteenth year of his reign, raising the second persecution after Nero, John was banished into the island of Patmos, where he wrote the revelation. Sulpicius Severus says that, John the Apostle and Evangelist was banished by Domitian into the island of Patmos, where he had visions and where he wrote the book of Revelation. Isidore of Seville, near the end of the 6th century, writes quote, Domitian raised a persecution against the Christians. In his time, the Apostle John, having been banished into the island of Patmos, saw the revelation. So, I'm firmly in the Eusebius camp with this one. And that's why I strongly go with 95 AD. Yup. Now, while confirming this detail, Eusebius writes in chapter 3, verse 20, At this time, too, the Apostle John, after his exile on the island, resumed his residence at Ephesus as the early Christian tradition records. Okay, so not everything was written down for Eusebius to cite, but their tradition is that John lived in Ephesus prior to Patmos and also afterwards. One of these Christian traditions has him bringing the Virgin Mary with him to Ephesus. Now, where do I get that? vacation. (laughs) Yes, as I said earlier, I had many questions about the life of John, and I took a vacation with my wife to Rome, Patmos, and Ephesus. Prior to Paul's ministry, Ephesus was a hub for ancient paganism, where shrines of Artemis or Diana brought worshipers far and wide to modern-day Turkey. I visited those ruins. They were impressive. I can't imagine how impressive they were back in the day. Paul saw it as a challenge and went right down to those dirty Diana devotees and tossed the cleansing water of Christ in their faces. Whether Paul or the other Christianized Jews knew it at the time, the church needed to take root at places other than Israel. And by the time Titus came with his metaphoric bulldozers, Christian embers were beginning to blaze, at what would become the seven candlesticks in Revelation. Although tradition does not tell us when he brought Mary, the latest date for the move would have been 70 AD, which means he lived there for at least a few decades. Now, I like to picture him moving her earlier than that since we have little record of him in the book of Acts after the first few years. And even then, he was a sidekick to Peter. If Mary had younger children cousins, which is a debate for another time, she might not have been able to move for the first few years. The original foundation of the house is still found in Ephesus. The rebuilt structure is on a wooded mountain slope, but built in a little dip in the hill so that the structure isn't even seen from the valley below. There is a natural spring providing water, and the air is sweet, Two thousand years later, it's a place I'd consider retiring. If it was John's secret base for preaching in Ephesus, it makes sense. However, if it is the place where Master and Apprentice trained, it's the perfect place to focus. Let's meet Darth Domitian. But I probably shouldn't break copyright. Okay. Lurking in even darker shadows than a mountain cabin was a figure that came to the Roman throne in 81 AD Emperor Domitian. Now, I have a wild theory about the seven heads of the beast, you know, the Antichrist, based on something that John later writes. In fact, I want to write a whole Bible study about it, but I'll save that for another day. First, Let's look at what John did write. Revelation chapter 17 verse 7 reads, And the angel said unto me, Wherefore did thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which hath seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou saw was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they beheld the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And here's my favorite verse. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goes to perdition. And the ten horns which you saw... Are ten kings, which have yet received no kingdom, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Okay, what biblical scholar or amateur hack hasn't taken a crack at these verses? But I want you to pay close attention to the most literal of the lines, which is verse 10. According to the angel, heads equals kings, fallen equals dead, is equals alive, not yet come equals the future. Okay, so let's just recap a bit. John was shown a beast with seven heads, and apparently each dead head, not the Grateful Dead, Uh, Each deadhead has some sort of connection to the Antichrist. These deadheads were rulers or kings too. When John wrote this down, or specifically heard it from the angel in the year 95 AD, five of the seven kings were already dead. And yes, I made a list of prime candidates, but again, for another day. And one of them would appear in the future. And again, yeah, I have a Nazi-rific candidate for this one also. But the easiest one to figure out is the is. Okay, that sounded strange. (laughs) Okay, but regardless, it's the present tense ruler. So yes, I think it is the guy who arrested John because any other Roman emperor, including Nero, pales in comparison. Why? Well... Not much is known about Domitian's early life, but his brother was the general who leveled Jerusalem. He was also a general and loved the military so much that even after becoming emperor, he wore his military uniform. He was violently homophobic and brought back horrifying penalties for crimes. He was a scary dude. He brought Rome to a dystopian government model of efficiency through terror, and overhaul Rome's military to be at its peak efficiency. Oh, and he he declared himself a deity. Nothing out of the norm there. Unlike his peers and predecessors, he did something unique. He privately brought back ancient Roman religions, you know, forget all those Greek god knockoffs, which included worshiping a four-faced version of Minerva. Once versed in the dark lore, he turned his sights to Christianity. Taking up a dropped policy, he decided it was time to use the data from the old census to hunt down and exterminate any Jew with royal blood. Bit late, but still wicked. His extermination was so complete that his bounty hunters brought him a name that was recognized. Jude. No. Not Jude himself, but the bounty hunters still found two grandsons of Jude. To recap, they brought him the grandsons of a guy who may or may not have been a cousin of Christ. According to Eusebius, Domitian took one look at the callous country bumpkins and dismissed them. Ironically, allowing them to return to their successful ministries. Now, maybe Domitian wasn't in the mood to witness torture and torment that day, But he was usually in the mood for blood. Roman historians wrote how his hidden and perverse cruelty, and that even socially, his dinner parties were so black that the guests would be paralyzed with fear. Fun guy, huh? He even had an epic death. According to some accounts, he was killed by a Christian assassin who sees an opportunity for revenge and to save Christendom. Now, ask yourself, if you could run over the Antichrist, or Hitler, crossing the street, would you do it? Well, his assassin, a member of the household staff, took the chance, mortally wounding Domitian, who managed to kill his killer. Yes, Domitian went out killing. Seven Antichrist kings one who is, Domitian. The execution of John. Wait, I thought John died of old age in Ephesus. Isn't that what tradition says? Well, (laughs) there is another tradition, cited only in reference of a horrifying account of John and Domitian being brought together in the same place. According to tradition, cited by Tertullian, John was arrested. Imagine being one of those bounty hunter types looking for uh, uh, church leaders. When you stumble upon John, um, you're fishing for someone who would make the emperor happy. Once you get John talking, you suddenly realize that not only is he a Christian leader, but that he might be, wait for it, THE John, yes, the guy from all the stories. Now remember, the age issue, he'd be a spry 75, the age issue might make them question this truth, but if John opened his mouth, they would have known they caught the biggest fish in the sea, so (laughs) they bring him to Rome? Apparently, Domitian wanted the execution to be a big deal. So he chose to have it happen at the Colosseum in front of a big crowd. The uh, Latin Gate is supposed to be the exact spot it happened. Again, this urban legend has a bunch of variations, including some where Domitian has him poisoned, but the most popular version has Domitian ordering a large vat of boiling oil. Which, I guess it makes sense. We don't want anybody coming back to life, do we? boiling in oil would be horrific and when all is said and done there wouldn't be anything but liquid goop to bury that is an efficient execution so the cauldron was rolled in the fires were lit a platform was built a crowd gathered and emperor domitian showed up to see what all the fuss was about An agitated 75-year-old man is brought to the cauldron, walks up the stairs, and is tied to some sort of mechanism that would allow him to be lowered into the cauldron. If they bothered to ask John if he had any last words, his answer might have been, It's about time. (laughs) Remember, he's been waiting for a glorious death for almost six decades now. Jesus promised. And Brother James got... Killed with the sword. And John? Well, John waited. Now finally, he's been caught and will go to heaven to see if he does in fact get preferential treat- seating. Uh, whether he expects pain or a martyr's numbness, he can look down now and know it's going to be over quickly. Yet, that is not what happens. Instead, they lower him into the oil to no effect. Now, John is probably as surprised as anyone. Is this really happening? While the legend easily could have merged with other miraculous accounts of similar nature, it is said that the crowd that witnessed the incredible miracle immediately converted to Christianity. Now. What would Darth Domitian be thinking? Oh, crap. If this is the John, the one from the Gospels, then he once was chided by Christ for asking if he could call fire down from the sky to destroy a Samaritan village that rejected the Gospel. That John. Tertullian references this part of the tale as if, you know, he'd heard it a bunch of times. This is how he put it. How happy is its church, on which apostles poured forth all their doctrine along with their blood, where Peter endures a passion like his Lord's, where Paul wins his crown in a death like John's, where the Apostle John was first plunged unhurt into boiling oil and thence remitted to his island exile. (laughs) When I first heard this legend... It was a bit much for me. But then I thought long and hard about Patmos. And after visiting the island, I understood it better. You see, there is no big prison camp system where you'd bring the world's worst criminals. There was no prison. There was no population. Patmos is a rock with no freshwater source. So what do you do with the beloved disciple of your Domitian? He's far too dangerous to keep in Rome, since you now have a coliseum full of new Christians. If you release him, he'll keep on preaching. If you put him in a prison, an angel will open a wall or he'll convert the prison. Sending him to an isolated island where he can do no harm is perfect. But it only makes sense after the boiling oil story it also makes sense if he is 75 instead of, you know, like over 90 like Christ's contemporaries would have been. He'll leave him to die on Patmos. Instead, Domitian gets assassinated and John is released back to Ephesus with a new message and a new perspective on Christ's martyr promise.